All right, brothers and sisters, and those uh, whom I hope will at least by the end of the day be brothers and sisters. Um, it's good to be with you. I, I want us to stand for our reading of Matthew 26. This, this Sunday, we're just going to read verses 17 through 35, and then we're going to be jumping into the sermon of the day. Now, so this is on the screen, I'll read it from here. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, yeah, there's something that got messed up in the slides earlier, so I'll read the, the rest of the verses from here. Verse 30 to 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Amen. The word of God. Um, you may sit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I think we all know maybe that one person who just likes to play the role of the devil's advocate in situations where they try to pick fights over all the minute details. And one of the interesting things is when you read history and especially church history is that a lot of the times it seems like minor things have been played up to be more than they are or just cost fights and divisions. Um, now, this is one of those, these are one of those verses. These are one of those like chapters of scripture that has been fought over a lot. And, and first of all, we fought over the name of it. What should we call this? Should we call it communion? Should we call it... Uh, the Lord's Supper, so we call it the Mass, or the Eucharist, or the Sacrament, and so on and so forth. And there's been a lot of infighting among the church, not only about the name, but also the nature of this. So at a time when, when he knows his death is coming, great suffering and, 
and humiliation from the crowd is approaching, he spends his last night with his disciples during uh, one of the last, the last meal, the Passover meal. And many churches have used like all these different names to describe the same thing or the attempt to go for the same thing, to, to recreate what Jesus did with his disciples before his death, to remember the broken body of Jesus and his blood that was shed for a, a new covenant. Now, um, when you start getting into this, you notice like almost right away, there's some very strange ideas about what we do every Sunday in various church traditions. Like, for instance, uh, the Catholic Church, it, it will not admit to it, but when you start to read their, um, uh, what is the thing where you ask the question? Catechism, thank you. Uh, when you start to read their catechism around the, the past, the, well, the Eucharist, the sacrament, the Mass, whatever you, you decide to call it, you start to notice some really strange ideas. Now, one of those ideas is that during the Mass, Jesus is sacrificed again for our sins. Uh, that when we do communion, or in their view, when Christians take communion, we are re-sacrificing Jesus for the forgiveness of sins yet again. Now, this is completely contrary to like Hebrews 10.10. 10. It says, Jesus was sacrificed, his body was given once and for all. But then there's also strange ideas around the meal that Jesus had. For instance, um, transubstantiation is the view they, they hold to what the bread actually is. And that's a fancy word to describe that they believe that when you eat the bread, when you drink the wine, it turns into the literal physical body of Jesus Christ and the literal physical blood of Jesus Christ. And then you have, on the other hand, the team that entered into the picture about 500 years ago with Martin Luther. He came in and his view, uh, although he never claimed to be this, uh, he, he, uh, he's been sort of forcefully given the title consubstantiation. So he doesn't believe that it turns into the literal body of Jesus Christ or the literal physical blood of Jesus Christ, but that the presence of Jesus Christ is somehow physically involved when we do communion. And he took this so seriously that one of the, one of the main um, reformers at his time, as Huldrych Swingli, uh, in Switzerland, right? Yeah, uh, they, had, they had a major debate about this. Uh, Swingley was more of the thought that, yes, the presence of Jesus Christ is present, but it's not physical, it's not literal. Um, but it got to a point where Martin Luther finally said to him, we are not of the same kind. And he, he broke fellowship with Swingley because of his view on the Lord's Supper. So for the fa- past hundreds of years, people have been fighting over this. And while L- Martin Luther was sort of trying to trying to tweak the concept of communion. Swingley was sort of describing himself as someone who's just trying to rip communion up by its roots, as it was known by uh, the Catholic Church, and trying to replace it with something that he thought was more biblical, that when we eat the body, the broken bread, the body of Jesus Christ, and when we drink, and we are reminded of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a presence of Jesus Christ, but it's pointing us to a greater spiritual uh, reality. That the power of the Lord's Supper 
was in what it pointed towards. It pointed to a new covenant. It pointed to a sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It pointed to justification on our behalf. It pointed to us communing with God. And it also points to our unity. When we break bread together and we all eat from the same bread, we are reminded that we also have communion with not only God through Jesus Christ, but also his people. We are communion with one another. And to me, and I think for most sort of Baptist churches, they tend to lean towards Swingley's view on the Lord's Supper. Now, some, some of the people have said, because Jesus said to his disciple, take, eat, this is my body. That, like, uh, this was Luther's view, for example. He came and said, well, if you do not say that the presence, this is the body of the body of Jesus Christ, the physical body of Jesus Christ, somehow you are not taking Bible seriously enough. And that's why he opposed Swingley to such a degree. He thought he was not taking the Bible serious enough. Jesus said, this is my body. Therefore, you take it as this is my body. Now, oddly enough, John Calvin, he, he took a similar position to Swingley, but then Martin Luther read John Calvin, and he was like, yeah, that sounds, sounds great to me. Um, and so it's very muddled, all this thing about the physical presence of Jesus Christ. Um, so he makes the case, because he says, this is my body, that means it's his literal body. But think about this scenario. Like in our text today, we are reading about the last meal of Jesus Christ. He's with his disciple on Passover and before Passover. He is eating with them, and he says, take and eat, this is my body. Now think about you seeing that scenario. Do you think one of his disciples thought that the bread he was eating was actually his physical body? No. Because no. they were looking at his body across the table from them, speaking, speaking to them. Jesus was still in his physical body. It is meant to be a picture, a remembrance of what he is about to do. It is, it is meant to be a symbol and a sign. Uh, for instance, Jesus also says, I am the door. Right? No one says, well, if you want to take Jesus seriously, you have to admit that he is a door, uh, like a literal physical door. And that's actually one of the things that Swingley brought up. And what is the purpose of a sign? It points to something greater, a greater reality. Like imagine um, Ratke is going to, is it Italy in a week or so, and Gurun as well? Uh, but imagine you go somewhere with a huge tourist attraction. What is a, what is a big tourist attraction in Italy? <laughs> Rome? The parking lot? Yeah? The park? Huh? The Coliseum. Yeah, the Colosseum. Yeah, let's just say the Colosseum. Because I'm like, I heard parking lot. And uh, the Colosseum, right? Let's say, let's say Iraqi and Guru and go next week to Italy. And they, they, they suffer for, for Christ there, enjoying the culture and the sun and everything else, and skip the storms we get to have here in Iceland. And they drive past, and there's a sign that says the Colosseum to the right. And they, I was like, well, drive past it. Uh, we need to go to Starbucks, you know, more important things to do. And so you, you drive past the sign, but um, you come back home, and all of a sudden, Raki, 
is here another Sunday, and he's telling everyone, we went to the Colosseum. It was amazing. And Gudrun is standing there thinking, we didn't go to the Colosseum. We drove past a sign that said the Colosseum. And he's like, well, it's basically the same thing. It's like, well, no, not really. I mean, one is a sign, and one is the actual reality. The, the sign is there to point to a greater reality, uh, just like a wedding ring, for example. Uh, like maybe some of you are like me in here. You never really had, uh, if you notice, I've lost my wedding ring. I, t- I didn't weep because of the financial loss. I miss it because of what it meant, and I need to get a new one. So thank you for reminding me, by the way. Uh, no, but it, it, what, I, what I missed was it, it had sentimental value. Like the dollar value was like $200 or something. I, I got a very cheap one. But the ring was the ring I put on my finger when we got married. And it meant something greater than just the ring. It was worth more than just a dollar amount that I lost because it pointed to a greater reality. Now, the sign of the Lord's Supper operates in the same way. It points us to a greater reality. When we break the bread, we are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we know that Scripture tells us, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So I think we all have to admit the presence of Christ is with us in the communion, in the Lord's Supper. So um, it's, it's sort of like baptism, right? We don't import holy water from Jerusalem for our baptism. You know, we, we've got regular Icelandic water. But we realize when we baptize someone, it's much more than a quick bath, you know, a random like bath during a service. It is a sign pointing to something greater. Someone being buried and raised to new life. A sign pointing to a spiritual reality of what God has done in that person's heart. Now, what we have to remember as Christians in the 21st century is to remember that this is not written by a Scandinavian person uh, you know, in 20, the 21st century. This is written... Uh, by Jews, for Jews, and, and 2,000 years ago. Now, one of the things that we have to remember is that he's going to have the Passover meal. There's a lot of things that are happening here. There's a meal from the Jewish perspective that, that we have to sort of take into account. The reality is, um, first of all, Jesus is eating this meal at a weird time. So one of the things that you realize if you go back in time is that their view of the day was much more, much different than ours, right? We think midnight, that's a new day, until midnight the next. Their view was when the sun sets, that's an end of a day and a new one has just begun. So a new day had just begun while the sun had set. And so he is in the same day from the Jewish mindset, it is the Passover day because it had just begun. He's eating during the night with his disciples. Most people, when they were celebrating the Passover, they would eat it in the morning or uh, the lunch or the dinner, basically the following day from our perspective, but the same day from their perspective. And and one of the things that you notice, if, if you go and check what the traditions were for the Passover, you start to realize there are some certain crucial elements missing from this, this, uh, this Lord's Supper, his last supper with his disciples. Um, one of the main ones was the, Pes- uh, uh, the Pesach lamb, the P- or Pascal lamb, 
the, the Passover lamb. That was the centerpiece of the Passover meal, the Passover lamb. And we ask ourselves, like, why is there only mention of wine and bread in this passage? Well, I think there are two explanations for this, and it, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, so we don't have to choose one or the other. I think both apply here. The Passover lamb, you got to remember, this is before refrigerators. This is before uh, you, you had freezers where you could store things for months on end. Usually when you would eat meat, it was right after it was killed because you couldn't really preserve it for very long after that. Now, Passover lamb was always eaten after the sacrifice had been made. Now, what is the problem here? While the Passover sacrifice is being made, Jesus is on a cross outside of the city. He is being killed. So he's eaten this before the sacrifice is taking place. And so there is no Passover lamb there. And also Jesus knew that he was going to die tomorrow and was eating earlier with his disciples for his last meal, knowing what tomorrow would bring. And then secondly, in saying, this is my body. He is replacing the Passover lamb with himself. He's declaring himself to be the Passover lamb. The lamb without blemish, the innocent sacrifice for the guilty. Like, if you, if you want to turn to your Bibles and underline this, this, this is one way you see this happening in, in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. So if you want to stop there, one of the traditions during the Passover was that uh, a Jewish family would take almost everything out of the house and start to go through every nook and cranny in the house to remove all leaven from the house. It gets, I don't know why, but always for me, it gets me thinking like, how messy were you in the kitchen? It's like it's every, everywhere is just leaven you have to clean out. But they clean out the whole house, remove all leaven from the house for a particular reason. Um, now he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when the lamb is missing, and Jesus holds the bread up and breaks it and says, this is my body, he is replacing himself as the fulfillment of the picture that the Passover lamb was supposed to convey. So during Passover, each family would clean out their house of leaven, um, and in Passover, the Jews were sort of looking back. It was, it was their way of remembering what God had done, but it was also a way for them to teach to their children what God had done. And Passover looked to, uh, to remind them and to teach the children of God freeing them from slavery in Egypt to bring them to their own land. But here in our text today, you notice something is missing. Jesus is not using this to look back. He's not saying, look what God has done. He's saying, look what God is going to do. This is in the future. He's placing himself as the fulfillment that the Passover lamb was supposed to point to him. And he's saying, this is about to be done. This is my body that's broken for you. Remember, he has not been... He has not been jailed. He has not been persecuted. He has not been, well, he has been persecuted, but he hasn't been beaten. He hasn't been mocked yet. 
So he's, he's using this meal where a normal Jewish family would be using this opportunity to look past in the, in the past of what God had done. He is breaking the bread saying, look what God is about to do. This is my body. It's broken for you. And this is my blood for a new covenant. He was there to free people from the slavery of sin and death. And then you look at his promised land. It was not sort of a plot of land somewhere riddled with war, riddled with sin, riddled with death, riddled with fallen humanity. But it's a new Jerusalem, a new earth. And Jesus is the greater Passover, where death is not only sort of delayed for the people, but it's conquered, it's defeated, where our ultimate slave master is done away with, and our promised home is greater than anything that we can imagine here on earth. Now, Jesus, he's, he's warning, he warns uh, Judas. Like, he knows what Judas is about to do. He's explaining to Judas the seriousness of the offense that he's about to do. Um, now, I had a conversation last week that was asking, because uh, there are a lot of theories. There are a lot of, like, Gnostic writers after this that speculate, for instance, Judas was the only... Was the only uh, disciple who really got it. He was in on the plot. He was trying to get Jesus to fulfill the prophecy, and the others were just sort of clueless. Uh, and then I read this verse, you know, in 24, where is it here? It says, the son of man goes at his, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for him, for, for that man, if he had not been born. So he gives Judas this very weighty and serious uh, warning about what he's about to do. And this is before he's committed to it. And with this warning, I think we can throw away all speculation of what Judas was doing from a pure heart, like trying to, trying to help Jesus fulfill the prophecy and, and so on and so forth. He hears this warning. He hears Jesus basically say to him, if you're going to do this, it is going to be better for you not to be born at all. And then he goes and does it anyway. Um, and we might be tempted to sort of highlight the stupidity of Judas here. Like, like you, you, this guy knows things that no other human knows. He knows what's going in, on in your heart. He's telling you uh, the seriousness and the weightiness of, of the judgment of God on him for his actions if he chooses to do this. But let's stop for a moment and look at, her, you know, look at ourselves like, we each have our history in here. We each have committed sins. Like, we are here because we all recognize that we are sinful, that we need someone else to save us. We need Jesus to save us. Right? And even, like, I, am, I marvel over the patience of God after I become a Christian. Like, I see some of the stuff like that, that horrible way back machine on Facebook. It, it shows me all the stupid stuff I've said throughout the years. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, I was a Christian at that point. Man, I was stupid. Man, I've grown a lot. And here, I'm, I'm pretty sure that five years from now, if Facebook still exists and hasn't taken over the planet, you know, um, 
If, if that's still there, that way back machine, I, I'm probably, me, five years removed from this moment, is probably going to be thinking, well, thank you, God, for your grace and patience with me. Like, even just, I, I think about his patience on my life after I, I came to faith and started growing in sanctification. And him just saying, yeah, I'm going to work on him. I'm going to put him through situations. They're going to work out for his good. That's not necessarily that everything works out for, for me well, like in the physical, in the financial, whatever. But I, he's going to look more like Christ when he comes out on the other end. Man, the patience of God is amazing. But we may marvel over sort of the stupidity of Judas, saying, Judas, you got this guy in front of you. He's done miracles for years. He's done things that no human can do. He's proven himself to know things that no human can know. He's given you a warning not to do this, for it would be better for you not to be born at all if you decide to do this. And you do it anyway. What a fool. But then we look at our own lives. And then we look at sort of the culture around us and we start to think, man, we do the same thing. We take the warnings of God. We say yes and amen. This is the word of God. He has spoken. He has revealed himself. And we, and we go against it. Even when he has warned us of the implications. Like you, you think about... Um, our own lives, and, and just the culture that we live in. Like, we celebrate things that go exactly against what God has told us in his word. And we, you know, in the name of, you know, seeking happiness, you know, personal freedom, that type of stuff, we say, yeah, you know, go, go get your thing, you go do your thing. Well, God has said, now this is sin, and there are consequences to this. Like, even... I've been trying to remind myself of the past few months just how serious pride can be. We thought about how serious pride can be. Jesus, God literally says, I will stand against you if you're proud. That's serious, right? And we, we sort of, maybe we say, ah, it's not that bad. You know, like who's not prideful in one area or another or or maybe we say, that's ah, confidence, you know, I'm just a very confident person. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying there is no such thing as good confidence, um, you know. But at the same time, we, we can use that word to, to try to, is there snow in here? Is there? Yeah, people are like. Um, we, we can use that word to try to hide our sins. That, yeah, I, I have this pride. But kind of like Judas, we hear God speak we hear major implications for this, and we are kind of like, yeah, you know, let's. God is patient, <laughs> God is loving, but He's also true to His word. He's also true to His promise. He also tells us the truth. When He is warning Judas, that is a real and serious warning. When He is warning us in Scripture, that is, those are real and serious warnings. Well, we may wonder why Judas did not take the warning of Jesus seriously. We may look at ourselves in our culture and ask ourselves sort of the same question. Now, when you start to look at the Passover meal from a Jewish perspective, everything had a symbolic meaning behind it. 
It's, it's, it, it, like, for instance, um, it was a way for them to remember what God had done, but also to tell the children. So they, ha- they, they ate, like, bitter herbs. I can only imagine the Passover meal was, like, really, really <laughs> popular among the kids. <laughs> All right, now we're going to eat some bitter herbs, kids. And, uh, like, why are you making me do this, Dad? Uh, it's like, well, it's because it was bitter being a slave in Egypt, you know? And so it was like, I can only imagine that it, it got more serious as they grew older, but probably very hated among the kids. Like, oh, this is the, yeah, that day of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Can someone mess with the dimmer on the lights to try to, can, just a little bit up or down, just to try to see if the flickering goes? Um, now, they were also, they drank salt, salt water. Oh, man, this is so bad. They drank salt water to, to remember the tears in Egypt. And there, yet again, is probably not a popular thing among the kids. Oh, yes, great, yeah. No Coke, just salt water today? Okay. Uh, they were drinking this to remember the tears that they had in Egypt. They were, they were eating unleavened bread because the thought behind it was that when the freedom of God came and they were freed from slavery, it happened so fast that there was not enough time for that to let them, to let them leaven the bread. That took time. What is it? Someone who knows how to bake probably knows this, probably like a day or two to, for the dough to rise, or maybe a few hours, I don't know. Uh, but it takes time, at least I know that. But th- that was the whole concept, that the reason why we have unleavened bread is because it happens so fast that you couldn't let the, the lump leaven. Now, the lamb was the centerpiece, because it happened during the last plague. And one of the things that you remember is the judgment of God was coming. He had told Pharaoh... If you do not let my people go, the firstborn of every house will die, except the ones that mark their door with the blood of a lamb. And so they sacrificed the lamb, they marked the door, and then the judgment of God came over the city. But when when the blood was there, um, man, this is just the worst Okay, Sorry, I get so distracted by this. When When the judgment of God came over the city... Um, the, the, the judgment of God would pass over the, the house with the blood. And that's why it was called Passover. Um, but Jesus, he gives it a new meaning to remember his death. And what's amazing is you, you read the story of Exodus, uh, and you see that God takes this mob of people, and he gives them a promise, and he makes them a nation. And so the same thing is happening here. A new people is being created, united under Jesus and trusting in his sacrifice, him being the greater Passover, the new covenant. A mob of people made to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be you know, drawing strangers that don't know each other to become family, loving one another, carrying each other's burdens, Spurring each other on to loving good deeds. And Jesus says, there is now a a new covenant in his blood, just just as blood was used in Exodus 24, 8. In Exodus 24, one of the things that you read there, and in the two chapters preceding Exodus 24, is that there is a covenant made with the people of Israel. And God says, if you do these good things, I will bless you. If you do these bad things, I will curse you. 
And all the people of Israel say, we accept your covenant and we will do your things. And then they fail miserably. Like we've all failed miserably. And so Jesus, when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, is pointing to this. Well, here's the one who fulfilled the covenant. Here's the one who lived the perfect life and he made a covenant with people who have already messed up. I mean, he spent time with his disciples. He knows how they mess up already, saying the wrong stuff at the wrong time, not getting it. So he says to people that are already messed up, already broken, I will be faithful. I will be your Passover lamb. I will take the judgment of God that you deserved for not obeying, and I will take it on me. And in his faithfulness, he promises in Jeremiah 31, in the Old Testament, to make us his people, to write his law on our hearts and minds, to remember our sins no more. Now, unfortunately... There are many who claim Jesus as Lord, but never really show sort of the signs of this new covenant really being in place. They're okay with saying, I'm a Christian, but there's, there's little evidence of any kind of heart or mind transformation. There's little evidence of them actually believing in the cleansing of sin. Many, many say, I'm a Christian, but yes, I'll try my best to earn heaven. It's like, that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. There's no word of God in their hearts, no relationship with God. And sometimes, my bad days, I, I tend to fall in the same trap. Like my sinful flesh wants to earn things, wants pride, wants to pride myself in my earning. And so I ask us, have we realized the promises of God in the new covenant? One of the things that is amazing read is Jeremiah 31, just to remember what God promises in the new covenant and asking ourselves the question, does this show in my life? Is it seen in my life that he has actually transformed my heart? Or how, how much is it seen? God, would you allow me to be a witness not just with my words, but also just be a witness in what it looks like to live a transformed life. What it looks like to love my husband or my wife or my children or, or work well in my workplace when I have been transformed by the power of God. Have we experienced not only knowing what the gospel is with our mind, but experiencing its transforming effect of the heart and the weight of sin and the beauty of relationship with our Lord and Creator. But we get to the Lord's Supper, and I find it very interesting that Jesus himself, in Scripture, he does not, he does not give us, for instance, we, we love Christmas, right? We love Christmas. I, I love the Christmas lights during December just because it's dark and like, I don't know what I would do if we didn't have Christmas lights in, in December. This, it would just be miserable. It would be bad weather, dark all the time. Like, I can't, can't imagine it without it. But here's an interesting thing. When you read the scriptures, Jesus never tells us to commemorate his birth. Right? He never tells us to commemorate uh, Palm Sunday, for instance. 
when he enters into Jerusalem. He never asks us to commemorate uh, any of his miracles. The only thing that he asks for us to continually remember is his death. Continually remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He wants us to remember his death, his body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for a new covenant, his suffering that would purchase our healing, his death that would make us alive, his blood that would cover our sins. That's what he wants us to remember. What a peculiar thing to remember, right? What a peculiar thing to make people revolve around. People might think, well, that's pretty depressing. Why would we want to be reminded of our greatest hero's death all the time. But then, as a Christian, you start to realize, at his death, his blood was shed on our behalf. That is our greatest hope. And his defeat of death. Right? And when we celebrate his death, we also acknowledge his perfect life. We acknowledge the reality of who he is and what he had done. And we acknowledge that we need a savior. And Jesus, he points to this meal, this drink, and this bread, and says here, this is my body. Take and eat. And like, how simple is that? Take and eat. Now, to someone who's very competitive, to someone who struggles with earning things, to someone who struggles with getting charity, right? Asking people for help, this is a big step. There isn't a... You know, work for a few hours, show that you are approved of, and then take and eat. No, it says take and eat. This is my body. And if we want the grace of God, we cannot earn it. All we can do is come and take and eat. Now, do you know what happens when you skip a few meals? Right? When you, when you, when you skip drinking for a few days? You're going to have problems. For some reason, I was under the impression that you can only like, live for like three or four days, three probably max, while drink, uh, not drinking anything at all. Five. Well, I was doing some research the other day, like yesterday, and I was like, they were saying up to two weeks. I was kind of like, what is going on? Not drinking for two weeks. Anyways, the point is, in the end, you die. You don't drink for a while, be it two or three days or 15 days, in the end, your organs are going to shut down and you're going to die. What happens when you don't eat for a couple of months? Same thing happens. You need drink. You need food to survive, to keep going. There is no way for you to live without it. You will lose your strength. You will lose your energy. Ultimately, you will lose your life. Our physical bodies are not able to live without drink or food. And then, you know, we think about this picture. Just as the natural food gives life-sustaining power to our physical bodies, our feeding on Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his sacrifice, gives us spiritual life. That there is no way for us to have true life without Jesus. There is no way for us to be sustained there's no way for us to do anything in our own mind. What is the, like, I am, you are, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Yeah, yeah. See, it's 
so dangerous to quote things on the fly. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. We are connected to him. If we want to bear fruit, if we want to live, if we want to do anything, we have to be connected to him. We are these completely dependent children on our father just to provide for us. Just to say, I'm here, I can be annoying sometimes, would you please provide for me the power to get through this day? We need to be reminded of our utter dependence on God. Right? In our prayerlessness, when we forget just sometimes to bring our, our thoughts, our struggles, our anxieties before God, maybe we've fallen into pride at that point. Maybe we've thought, fallen into the thought, and I can do this by myself. Maybe we've forgotten that we are dependent on Christ and his work for us every single day. And just like with food, there is no expectation for us to truly live, to truly have power, to truly do anything at all if we do not rely on him to work in us and through us. Yet like Elliot was saying, like Elliot was saying, uh, like for instance, we, we don't get the pictures sometimes that, that we see in the Bible because we don't understand what really being hungry is. You read about famine, for instance, happening in the Old Testament, and you can barely relate. What is that, like a delivery for God to go to bonus or something? You know, like, what is a famine? We've never really experienced it. So when there's a descriptor of, I thirst for you, my soul thirsts for you, we've never been in an example where there's not just a faucet right next to us. But do we realize our dependence on Jesus? And maybe we know it up here. Do we realize it in our hearts? Why do we want to remember and uh, remember his death? Because this is our source of life. We are prone to forget our complete and utter dependence on God. But every week as we gather, we remember that just as our physical bodies need drink and food to live, we desperately need Jesus to truly live. At the core of our faith is a childlike dependence on God for him to free us from slavery, from him to guide us, for him to provide the sacrifice for the wrath of God to go pass over us, for him to strengthen us, for him to sustain us. If you look at anybody or anything else for these comforts, you will be sorely displeased. And maybe you don't look for anything or anybody else to fulfill these In your life, maybe you look to yourself and you're still, I think, unless you're living in ignorance, you know that you fail, right? What are we, two weeks into the new year? How many of us have failed on the, on the, the goals we set for our lives? Yeah? Yeah. Keep getting up, get up, <laughs> get up, and I'm not saying give up, just get up again, but we, we know that we fail How are we going to rely on us to sustain us, to strengthen us? Especially when we go through circumstances when we have nothing left. We need God. Do we realize our full dependence on Jesus? And if not, what is it that you're depending on and how is it going for you so far? <laughs> Because I've been there. I've been sorely disappointed. 
I've been at the place where I'm hopeful that this thing, this person, I myself will be able to do it this time and then been sorely displeased and fallen into despair. Turn to Christ. You need Jesus to pay your debt, to give you hope when you stand before the judgment seat of God because you've already failed the standards. We have already, every single one of us in here, has failed the standard of living the perfect life. And that is the call. Be holy as I am holy. So today, even still, when we drink and eat, we not only remember the sacrifice of Jesus, we remember his promise. And what great promise of the future, but also his, his work completed. Now, it says, after they gave thanks, the Greek word there is Eucharist, they sang a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives only to have Jesus again tell them of his coming death. Now, Peter says to him, we will not leave you. We will die with you if we have to. It's like perfect Peter for me. And all the, uh, all the other disciples agreed. But Jesus said, before the morning comes, remember this is evening, before the morning comes, you will deny me three times. You know, he will, he will run away in the coming hours with all of the disciples who show that they failed to be with the Lord in his most difficult challenge yet, his mock trial, his torture, his death. And worst of all, it was not the physical pain that he was in, but he was to take on the wrath of God for the sin of humanity. He was to die for us. The wrath of God over our sins on the sinless man who had come to be, take on the punishment of us, for, of all of us. Now, in the failure of the disciples, here they are a few hours before he gets arrested and they run off and scatter and Peter denies him three times. Even knowing that Jesus had said that, even knowing that Jesus had already told them, before the morning comes, you will deny me three times, he still does it. And yet, God uses Peter. God uses him to later on ask him three times, do you love me and feed my sheep? He uses Peter, and I love that, that comfort, the comfort that he can use me too. He can use all of us. Because ultimately, it's not about how great we are. It is about the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is about the greatness of the promises of God. It is about the greatness of the power of God working in and through us. It's, the, it's about the greatness of this new covenant. Man, what promises that God has given us. And yet, how often we remember to be completely dependent on God, saying, God, would you work in me, through me this day? Would you give me the power? How often we forget like, I have thought for hours and let thoughts bother me for hours on end during a day. Something, one minor detail bother me instead of coming to God and saying, you know what, can I lay this at your feet? <laughs> can you help me? Give me wisdom if I need wisdom to deal with this or just take this. Help me through this. How often we try to be so independent, so great in our own strength, while all the while remembering that we are completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. We are completely dependent upon his body being broken for us and his blood being shed for a new covenant. 
Just like we need food to live, we need Jesus to live truly. There is no other way. He is the life.